Following the ascension of Christ, there were a couple of tendencies in the religious milieu of the Roman Empire that could have seriously hindered the spread of Christianity. Now, what I'm not doing here, I'm not denying God's providence and his ability to fulfill his promise that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What I'm saying here is simply that there were challenges that, in God's providence, he allowed to prevail in the infant church, yet he grew his church in spite of those things. Two of those things can be categorized as follows. Number one, syncretism. This is the idea of people freely and consciously, knowingly, borrowing elements of one religion and mixing it with others to invent their own religions. The Romans did this with the Greek gods. They simply gave them Roman names, and that was their new religion. That was very prevalent in the cultural and religious um, atmosphere of the Roman Empire at the time that the church was brand new. The other is Judaism. Either in the form of persecution or of the Judaizers. The Judaizers were those who insisted on some level of adherence to the Old Testament Jewish laws, such as circumcision, in order to be saved. They missed that Christ was the fulfillment of that shadowy religion. And what I am saying there by saying shadowy religion is not that it was evil or not that it was mystical, but that it foreshadowed and pointed to Christ. So to combat these challenges, the apostles had to state very early, in very clear terms, how the gospel message is from God and how it is utterly and completely unique. Mixing elements of other religions with the gospel message of hope would render the message hopeless to the eternal detriment of the souls of the elect, if such a thing were possible. And in fact, Christianity and Judaism at the time were the only two religions that held, um, that pushed against syncretism. All of the other religions that were around could freely mix elements of other religions and just incorporate it into their own. So the gospel was incompatible with syncretism. It was, in this sense, countercultural. These threats were dealt with in what was very likely the first epistle written in the New Testament, Galatians. I intend this morning, and hopefully by the grace of God we'll finish one day, to start a series on that book, Galatians. However, we have some peculiar circumstances this morning. Our format for the first two sermons is unusual. Um, As you know, I've prepared these messages in large part to provide some relief for our pastor from his regular preaching um, during this time when they're with a new child now. My preference would have been to introduce this book in a teaching sermon, in a PM service. I'm going to give you a lot of background information on the book. And this stuff just tends to lend itself a little bit better to teaching and not preaching. So, for example... We'll talk about the occasion. Why was this book written? The provenance. From where was it written? The dating. 
when was it written, the authorship, who wrote it, and the audience, to whom was it written. But the reality is, because I couldn't coordinate a schedule and yield this preferred method for giving the background information on the book, I've chosen to give it to you along with an exposition of the first five verses. So, for example, I'm going to speak at length in the next service about the audience. It turns out that that's not really a very simple question to answer. Who was this written to? It says right there at the end of verse 2, to the Galatians. But what does that mean? That's an involved answer. Um, We can start right away with authorship, for example, because it says Paul, an apostle. So what I'm going to strive to do is give you the background information in the context of exegeting and explaining the passage. Now, why do I go through these pains to explain this? I could have just left this out and just uh, ran with what I have. Um, I want you to know Um, I recognize that the people of God need the word of God preached to their hearts perhaps more than they need it taught to their heads, especially on our main Sunday morning worship service. Now, I feel no inclinations here of licentiousness. I feel absolutely zero inclinations to be creative. What I seek to do is faithfully explain what God has said to his people. And so I've labored to ensure that while some elements of what I will say this morning will be more like teaching, I'm trying to give it to you in the context of preaching, and I'm very sensitive to that. So I trust that God will bless the preaching of his word this morning in spite of the weakness of the vessel he's chosen to use this day. So why do we consider the background of any book Why even bother considering these things? Isn't the Bible enough? Can't we just look at what it plainly says? And who cares about the stories and the circumstances and when it was written and who wrote it and all of this stuff? Let's just read it. Well, yes, the Bible is enough. And we do have to know when we go to outside biblical sources that we lose infallibility. I understand that. However... The theology presented in the letters of the New Testament was not written in a vacuum. They were written for a real practical reason. When we read the book of Galatians or even Romans, we are not reading a theological treaty. Understanding some of the background information, by the way, some of the background information is presented in the text itself. Understanding this background information about a book will help you better understand the theology presented and how it was presented to answer a practical issue. All theology is ultimately practical. So it's going to help you understand the theology better because to miss what a theological truth means to you is to miss the theological truth altogether. I have a dear friend whose son is not saved. And his son, because he was raised in the church, can defend Christianity quite well. In fact, he can defend Reformed Christianity quite well. But he never learned what it meant for him. He never learned that he was a sinner, that he needed a savior. And so he missed the most important point. So let us be sensitive to the fact that theology is quite different than philosophy. We are here to learn to be more holy, and there's nothing more practical than that.
I could say some other things here. Understanding the background will help you understand the book as a complete letter. You will better understand how the, how the pieces fit together to create a cohesive gospel message. For me, I remember the book better. It also forces us to dig in more to the biblical text. Has anybody here ever studied a biblical text really in depth, and then when they're done, look back and said, you know, I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I didn't know quite that much. Or even, you know what, that really wasn't very helpful. I don't feel like I'm a better Christian because of this. We will not be harmed in digging into a biblical text in detail. And you will be better able to defend the hope that is in you, which will make you more useful vessels in God's kingdom and better able to fulfill your chief end, which is to glorify and enjoy him forever. So even though some of these topics delve into the realm of teaching, and, and I do apologize, especially this morning, it ended up being when I was running through this and kind of timing it, um, I didn't quite get past some introductory points. So it's going to be quite a bit of introductory information. Um, so while that's true, I do believe that it has a practical end still in glorifying God. So prior to getting to the text, let's talk about some of the initial background information on Galatians. <clears throat> I'll start with these three elements. Number one, its occasion. Its occasion is why was it written? What happened that prompted Paul to write this letter? Number two are its general characteristics. And number three, its main themes. So let me repeat that for anyone taking notes. Number one, its occasion. Number two, its general characteristics. And number three, its main themes. So first, the occasion. Why did Paul write this book? I'll just come out and say it. Paul wrote this book because there was a serious threat to the gospel. And the source of this threat was the Judaizers who were claiming that in addition to repentance and faith, you must be circumcised in order to believe. Now, this threat of that found its roots in the Jewish old dispensation religion was nothing new at the time Paul wrote this letter. And let's walk through some of the history here so we really get the full impact of what I'm trying to say here. The Jews were the principal persecutors of the Christian church in the apostolic age. I'll say that again. The Jews were the principal persecutors of the Christian church in the apostolic age, not the Roman Empire. Let us look to scripture to back this statement. Acts chapter 2. After opposing our Lord throughout his earthly ministry, they killed the Lord of glory. And Peter says just this, though it was done at the hands of the Roman Empire and they empowered the Jews to do this, Peter says in no unclear terms that they killed the Lord of glory. He says in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, Men of Israel, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. Let's fast forward to Acts chapter 9. 
This is after the point when Paul is converted on his road to Damascus, and shortly after his conversion, he's lowered in a basket from a city wall. Why? He is seeking to escape the Jews in Damascus who wanted to kill him because of the gospel that he preached. Fast forward again, Acts chapter 13, verses 48 through 50. Paul is in the southern region of the Galatian province, where he saw great success in the gospel among the Gentiles. But it hardened the hearts of the Jews that were present there who did not accept the gospel, and they stirred up persecution in that place to the point that Paul and Barnabas had, were driven from that district. The next chapter, Acts 14, verses 1 through 7. Paul flees Iconium from the Jews, and to be fair, the Gentiles were also involved with that. At the end of Acts chapter 14, 19 through 23, the Jews followed Paul on his travels from Antioch and stoned him in Lystra, leaving him outside the city gates to die. Um, it's easy for us to kind of gloss over that. They stoned him to the point they thought he was dead, and they picked him up and put him outside the city gates. So he was so unconscious that they could move him and they probably weren't very soft and light with him. They were probably rough with what they thought was just his body, and they threw him outside of the city to die. And he got up and went right back in to preach. Now, these examples go on and on and on, and you could even go back into the Old Testament and prophets like, um, like Elijah. We could have looked at uh, Stephen's speech before he was killed especially at the at the end where he calls the Jews there, you are a stiff-necked, stubborn people. You always reject God's prophets. This is a common theme. So it's nothing new that Paul himself personally has to deal with opposition from the Jews, but it's nothing new for the church. Um, it's nothing new really even in the church of the Old Testament. There's a general theme in the New Testament of Jewish opposition to the promised Messiah, to which their oracles pointed. This came to a culmination in Luke 24, 27, when Jesus expounded all of the Old Testament scripture to his, to his disciples. He says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The scriptures make it clear that the unbelieving Hebrew population was the main source of Christian persecution in the apostolic age. And that is simply biblical fact. There's nothing anti-Semitic about saying something like that. Aside from the direct opposition in terms of persecution, there was another thing that the church had to be worried about. Even the remnants of that religion found a way to threaten the church in those who were truly converted to Christianity in the form um, of, I guess you could call it, Judaizing tendencies. I think later we'll talk about Paul opposing Peter. When the Judaizers came and there were Gentiles present, he withdrew from the Gentiles. So there was even this inward tendency in the church to not fully let go of that old dispensation religion. So not even the apostles escaped this danger. Um, we do have the benefit of hindsight, right? You know the old saying, hindsight is twenty twenty, And so I'm going to walk through some 
some passages in scripture here that really make it obvious that this was always the plan, that the Gentiles would be included in this new covenant religion, that the Messiah was coming to save also the Gentiles. Uh, I'm going to walk through some of our our favorite covenant texts and some other areas in the in the Old and New Testament, and we'll see how obvious this was. And we look back now and we just kind of scratch our heads like, come on, guys, you didn't get that Jesus was going to call the Gentiles and all the nations of the earth from every tribe, language and people to be his people. So let's first look at Genesis 12. Genesis 12 and verse 3, we find the Abrahamic covenant. And God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God promised the same thing to Isaac. He says, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring at the start of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. God again promises this to Jacob in Genesis 28. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you, your offspring, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. There's the reference in Hosea 2.23 that Paul makes use of in Romans 9. I will have mercy on no mercy, and the way that that's written is no mercy is um, personified. If, if you read your English translations, no mercy, it's the N and the M is capital, so that's like a person. Um, I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, a personified phrase again, you are my people, and he shall say... You are my God. In Jesus's earthly ministry, he became increasingly blatant in his opposition to the Jewish religion. And it really comes at a peak, um, I believe, right before the the parable of the wedding feast. It's kind of the, the conversation that led up to the parable of the wedding feast. When he introduces that parable in Matthew 21, he says to the Jews that were there, therefore, I tell you. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you, scribes and Pharisees, and given to a people producing its fruits. Now, if all of that's not clear, Jesus gives a great commission. Do you remember that? He's about to be taken up to heaven. Now, imagine yourself there and put yourself in the apostles' shoes. They've been through all of what they've been through with Jesus. They've been with him some two or three years in his earthly ministry. They see him killed. They're very discouraged. They all, they all desert him. Then they see him come back. He preaches to them on the road to Emmaus. He reveals himself as the Lord. And then he's about to leave. And he says, oh, but before I leave, let me tell you something. I'm going to give you a command here. And he gives them the great commission. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
Then as the church was spreading throughout the Roman world, they just didn't get it. They didn't fully grasp the magnitude of the blessings that the promised seed of the woman would bring to mankind. God's plan of redemption was so much bigger than they understood. Was it really just for the Jews or was it for the Gentiles also? So God had to send Peter a vision in Acts chapter 10 in which he sees unclean and clean animals. You remember that vision? And he's told to eat them all, but Peter doesn't want to. He says, I've never, I've never, uh, um, I don't remember the words exactly. I've never eaten anything unclean. I don't want to do this. After his vision in verse 17 of Acts chapter 10, it says that he was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean. So when he is called to go visit Cornelius, a Gentile centurion who comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter meets him and he's finally starting to put two and two together. He says to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. That's the meaning of the vision. The food represents people. The unclean food is the Gentiles. The clean food is the Jews. And he's telling Peter, this gospel message is for everyone. Remember what I said before I left? Go preach to all the nations. That I meant that. Now do it. So Cornelius hears the gospel and is baptized along with his family. And then the Holy Spirit falls upon them. And this is still a surprise to the Jews who were present with Peter. It says in Acts 10, 45, And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. And so now they're finally saying, Oh, all the nations. We get it. The Lord had been telling the nation of Israel all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant that this is how it would be. And they finally seem to get it. So there seems to be this natural tendency in that ancient Jewish religion not to fully grasp the magnitude of the blessings that the promised seed of the woman would bring upon all mankind. It was always God's plan from every nation, tribe, and tongue to call for himself a people. And they finally got it. So the Jewish religion was a quite a challenge for the apostolic church, whether it was in the form of direct opposition in persecution, whether it was in the form of false converts who had an alternate gospel, or whether it was within their own ranks, not fully getting uh, to whom they should call to faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if it was a tendency for true Christian converts from Judaism to not grasp the typological nature of the Old Testament religion, how much more might there be a tendency for false converts from Judaism not to get it? In the very next chapter of Acts, following the baptism of Cornelius, that's Acts chapter 11, Paul is confronted in Jerusalem with the circumcision party who accused him of associating with the Gentiles. 
So Peter explains the whole story to them, and then finally they reply, oh, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. But it appears that this truth didn't fully sink in for the whole community. Because in Acts chapter 15, in verse 1, we read, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And you remember Acts chapter 15 is all about the Jerusalem council and how they dealt exactly with that problem. So whether it's that direct opposition that stayed with Judaism and rejected Christ as the Messiah, whether it was heretical Christian converts from Judaism, or whether it was true believers from Judaism, even apostles coming from Judaism, it was a great threat to the progress of the Christian church. This is the setting in which Galatians was written. These are the challenges that the church was facing. These are the experiences that Paul personally had. I'll argue later, uh, I think it's in the next service, that it was written just before the Jerusalem Council. But in the context of Jewish persecution, in the context of Christian Jewish converts who were confused about the typological nature of the Old Covenant religion, and in the context of Judaizers who were spreading a false gospel, we find this book of Galatians. It was these Judaizers and their false gospel that was the occasion for which this book was written. Paul is calling the Galatians back to the gospel that he preached to them. And so you see what I mean when I say that from our point of view, we have this wonderful 2020 hindsight and we can see the development of history right up to Galatians And then we read Galatians, and right away Paul says there is one gospel. I don't care if an angel comes from heaven and proclaims it to you. If it's not the gospel I proclaim to you, let them be anathema. And he says it twice. And so we see that in the context of history, and we say, boy, that was a really timely message. I'm glad Galatians was written, and we made that really, really clear, that there's only one gospel. And Paul dealt with the issue of circumcision before the Jerusalem Council. There's some interesting... um, theological conclusions about ultimate authority that we can draw from that. I'll talk to either at the end of this one or the next one. Um, Okay, so just because it's timely now, a few points of application. Um, Don't get excited. I'm not close to being done. Um, Number one, serious threats to the church are nothing new. There are many serious threats to the church today. Um, Encrouching wokeness among evangelical ranks is one serious threat. A watering down of the gospel, easy believism, is a serious threat. Um, Pastors preaching... um, You know, what what you'd hear from Joel Osteen is a serious threat, especially in places in the third world where these churches go out and they say, believe on Christ and you're going to be rich. You say that to destitutely poor people, you're going to get a reaction. Those are serious threats to the Christian church. But we can look back in church history and see that there was really no time that a serious threat did not exist. 
Now, of the threats that we face today, especially in this country, can we really say that they are worse than the threats of, for example, papalism in the medieval times? Can we say that our challenges now are greater than the challenges of the church, for example, when it faced the last great Roman persecution, the last great universal Roman persecution under Diocletian in AD 303, when Christians were tormented, when the horrible things were done to them, I don't even want to say what was done to them. They were a lot, they were cast to the dogs to be eaten, just terrible, awful things. The church has faced great challenges in the past. The church will always face great challenges. But the promise of Christ that he will be with his church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it still rings true. And more than any Christians in the past, we have the benefit of hindsight. We can see that promise worked out in history. Some other people, without access to as much information, without access to, just because of the timing, to as much of history, all they read was the promise that Jesus said, I'm going to build my church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We can read the promise, and we can see that worked out in history. In Matthew 16, 18 is where Jesus gives this promise. It's after Peter's con uh, confession. He says um, that Jesus is the Christ, that is. He says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew Henry makes this um, observation of that verse. This assures us that the enemies of the church shall not gain their point. While the world stands, Christ will have a church in it, in which his truths and ordinances shall be owned and kept up in spite of all the opposition of the powers of darkness, they shall not prevail against it. The church may be foiled in particular encounters, but the main battle, it shall come off more than a conqueror. Particular believers are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, 1 Peter 1, 5. I remember... The first time I really started understanding this whole issue of wokeness was before it really blew up in 2020, and it was um, under the teaching of Dr. Tom Askell, and I remember really being worried, like there was a knot in my stomach after hearing about this. And you know, in hindsight, I wonder, was I really worried about the church, or was I worried about my own comfort in practicing my religion? in an environment hospitable to it. We need to hold on to the worldly blessings that God has given us with a loose grip. They may be gone one day, and our hope is in heaven, not here on earth. So, so much for the occasion for which the book of Galatians was written. I do want to talk about some, in the second place, some general characteristics. There are two general characteristics to discuss. Number one, Galatians is a personal book. And number two, Galatians is a con confrontational book. So what do I mean by personal? Well, 
Paul establishes in this book why the gospel that he preached to the, to the Galatians was the one and only true gospel. It was not because he was an apostle. He doesn't say, for example, you know what, I'm an apostle. And when I gave you that gospel, I was speaking ex cathedra. It is truth. He justifies it by giving the Galatians personal background information on his conversion and his calling to the apostleship and his travels as an apostle to show this. And here's his basic argument. The gospel was independently given to me by God and later corroborated with other apostles. And the argument that he makes in these first two chapters, we'll kind of take it apart probably the next time I have uh, occasion that I have to preach to you. But has anyone has anyone heard of Isaac Newton? I'm sure lots of people. Has anyone heard of a guy with, I don't remember his first name even, his last name is Leibniz? I knew Sam would know that one. Newton and Leibniz both independently came up with calculus. At the same time, without talking to each other. And Leibniz didn't really like Newton, and he probably wouldn't like that history kind of favored Newton. Not many people know the name Leibniz. But he did independently come up with the math that was describing the physics that they were trying to understand. You know, the apple falling from the tree thing, you know, the, the whole story with Newton. They had to develop a whole new math to explain all of that stuff. And they both came up with it. Now, if you were Leibniz, say you knew Newton first, and you go to Leibniz, and he's teaching calculus, and you say, hey, you got that from Newton. How might he say, no, I didn't? He would say, no, I didn't. Who is that? I've never met him. I've never read his books. I was never, I never was taught by him. I never spoke to somebody who was taught by him. Therefore, what I came up with, I came up with independently of him. That's what Paul is doing in the first two chapters of Galatians. We'll unpack it more, but what he's saying is, um, I received this gospel. I didn't corroborate with any apostles right away. I did all of these travels. I did see some apostles in Jerusalem, but I was only there for 15 days. Then I left and I only saw a couple of them. And then finally at the Jerusalem council, I shared with them my gospel message and they said, yeah, that's the gospel. So he's saying, I independently came up with this. Therefore, it was from God. And that's why it has authority. And so there's a lot of personal information in here about Paul. He talks about how he received his gospel direct his gospel by direct revelation in Galatians 1, 11, and 12. He speaks of his former life of Judaism in Galatians 1, 13, and 14. He spoke of his story of being called to the apostleship in Galatians 1, 16 through 2, 10. He spoke of his opposition of Peter when he behaved like a Judaizer in Galatians 2, 11, and 14. So it's a very personal book. In the second place, it's very confrontational. I'm only going to mention it here because I will mention it more later. But it's a very confrontational book. And if you want to get a sense of how confrontational it is, well, first, you could just read about the first 15 verses. But what makes more of an impact is if you read the introduction to Galatians and then compare it with Paul's other introductions in his letters. This is the shortest introduction of all the letters of Paul. It's as if he couldn't wait to get past the pleasantries 
so that he could address the serious matter that was burning in his mind, a threat to the gospel. It's kind of like saying, hi, how are you? I'm good. You're good. Good. There's only one gospel. So right off the bat, it's very confrontational. And I would actually argue that some, some uh, commentators point out that right around verse 6, it gets controversial. It gets controversial in the um, fourth English word in the ESV. He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man. Right away, he's on the defensive. So it is a personal and confrontational book. Now let's look at some of its main themes. So to whet your appetite for a deep dive into this book, that Lord willing I will be able to do, consider some of the main theological themes that are covered in this book. There are five. Well, there's five that I, I chose to cover here. I'm sure other men better than me came up with different ones. The number one is ultimate authority. Number two is the uniqueness of the gospel. Number three is justification. Number four is law gospel distinction. And number five is the covenants. So first, what do I mean by ultimate authority? When Paul establishes the authenticity of his gospel that he proclaimed to the Gentile, it does not rest on the office that he bears. He points instead to the ultimate author of the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the same way that the church has always received the word of God. It is received because it is the word of God. It is not received because some church council who had the authority to declare it the word of God declared it so. So one of the old sayings that I've heard people say is that the Bible is a list of authoritative books. It is not an authoritative list of books. We believe it because it is the word of God, not because men have told us so. Um, number two, it speaks of the uniqueness of the gospel. This goes without saying for anybody with some familiarity with the New Testament. Paul says immediately after his rushed introduction, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And then he says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And the word there in older translations is anathema. Let him be damned by God. Even if an angel comes from heaven, imagine what that would be like if an angel came from heaven. You remember the story of Moses communing with God on Mount Sinai. He came down and his face was shining. And the people were afraid of him. He was just in the presence of God on a mountain. Now imagine an angel coming from the very throne room of God. What might that look like? Well, I don't know exactly, but when I read accounts of angels in the scriptures, many of them, uh, many of the people that were there were afraid. They're coming down, shining. I assume, with all, with all the glory of the throne room of God about them, 
coming down. And if that angel comes down and says, you know what, I have another gospel for you. We are to say, you are anathematized. Let that angel be cursed. That is a strong statement. So the second theme is the uniqueness of the gospel, the utter, the complete. I was a better literature person. I'd have all kinds of creative uh, words to use there, but the utter and complete uniqueness of the gospel. Number three, justification. This is an interesting one. In order to understand the gospel, you must understand something of justification. And Paul makes that clear in this letter. He says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And then the fourth one, law gospel distinction. The issue of justification by faith alone and not by works of the law naturally brings to question, well, what is the function of the law in light of the New Testament or in light of this gospel message from the Lord Jesus Christ? So those are four of the main themes. Um, In addition to the covenants, I don't have an example here for you of that. So some points of application here. We have to get the gospel right. What we can see in Paul's introduction and in this some of this background information of the book of Galatians is that we have to get it right. The details even are important. We must know the gospel itself. But it is also of gospel importance for us to understand some of the deeper theological underpinnings, justification, the relationship of the law to the gospel, covenant theology. All of those things are practical. Paul brought them up to deal with a very practical issue. So as we walk through the book, As we get past um, verses 8 and 9, where we'll talk about the uniqueness of the gospel, that's going to be a a very gospel-oriented message. To repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That is the gospel, but as we get deeper, don't check out. Don't check out when we get to the sections of the book that deal with finer theological points. They're not superfluous. They're not impractical. We should not miss the practical nature of those theological details. It matters on a practical basis how we understand the whole counsel of God. How about some examples on how that might be practical? At some point, children get old enough that they ask questions. At first, they will simply receive your instruction like a child. That's where that saying came from. They'll just receive it. They won't fully understand it, but they'll believe it because you're their parent and you're saying it. But at some point, they're going to ask questions. How does the gospel work? Is everybody saved? What happens 
to babies who die before they're able to respond to a gospel call. They're going to ask tough questions. And you have to be prepared to answer. Understanding some of those finer theological points will position you to answer those questions when your children come and ask them. My own mother had questions like that when she was about 17 years old. She was raised in a Shinto church, which is kind of like Buddhism as I understand it. And she started asking questions like, why are we here? What's the purpose of life? And they didn't have answers for her, and that's how the Lord called her to salvation. So understanding these finer theological points, please don't check out on them. They're not too hard for us to understand. I know that some people make them quite hard, but they are not too hard for us to understand. And you want to position yourself to help your children or anybody else that the Lord places um, within your sphere of influence um, so that you can speak a word in season. Another example where it might be practical. Um, Women. These doctrines are for you too. Paul instructs us through the book of Titus, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves of too much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. Is it possible that a right understanding of justification can help an older woman woman, um, to help a struggling younger mother who maybe is having a hard time keeping up with the duties of the family? Maybe she's wondering about her assurance to salvation because she can't keep the house clean, because she gets too angry at the kids, because she doesn't have dinner ready for her husband, and on and on and on and on. I'm just not cutting it. I'm not cut out for this Christianity, and she's struggling with her assurance. Do you think that if that older woman understood how to express justification, she could maybe help that younger woman? Even these finer theological points that we get to in this book um, are very practical. We certainly must get the gospel right, um, but we shouldn't just stop at the gospel. Um, In Jesus' great commission, he tells his disciples to make disciples of all the nations, but then it doesn't stop there. We are to continue training and learning throughout our lives. And I have a feeling that when we get to heaven, we're going to continue to learn more and more about the glory of God. I always say that's why heaven lasts forever, because we'll never be done with that. So we must get the gospel right, and we must be ready and willing to um, defend it, even to the detriment of our reputation with the world. Um, But this book also teaches us that these other theological details are worthy of our attention. And so, as I try to make it easy, um, you have to do your part, too. You also have to try to understand And hopefully together, we'll help one another overcome each other's weaknesses here. I'll go ahead and pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the book of Galatians. We thank you that we can see your providential hand in history. 
working out your plan of redemption from the very beginning. We, as most of us, I'm sure our Gentiles, are thankful, Lord, that it was always your plan um, to save a people from every nation and tribe uh, and, and tongue. Many of us are perhaps descendants of, of, um, of Canaanites in, in some way, shape, or form. And Lord, you have chosen us also, and so we thank you for that. We pray, Lord, that as we try to understand your word, that you would help us to do that. For who can understand you? We need your grace even to read and, and, and understand your word and to be blessed by the preaching of your word. And so as we have opportunity to look into this book of Galatians, we pray that our knowledge of it would grow, that we would not be puffed up because of that, but rather that we would be humbled. Uh, we want to get to points in our Christian maturity where we can be very conversational about the gospel message, about all of its details. We want to be able to express it to people who've never heard anything who were about this, who've never been raised in the church. We want to speak to it on a very practical level. We want to help our children. We want to help our wives. Uh, the wives want to help their husbands. Um, Lord, we want to glorify you. And we know that as we strive and seek to understand your word better, that we will be better positioned to do that. And so, Lord, we trust that when we ask you such a thing, you are faithful and you'll give us these things. And so we uh, place them at your feet and we thank you, Lord, for hearing us. And we thank you for the word of God preached this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.